actually the start of the new year for Christians. And so if you didn't know this, there's a actually like a Christian calendar, like a way that Christians organize the year as opposed to like the Roman calendar, which is what we use. Uh, and so a new year for us would be January 1st. That's what we're familiar with. But there are some Christians and some actual church communities that organize themselves around the uh, church calendar. And so today would be the start of the new year. So happy new year to everybody. Okay, this is the start of Advent, this season. It's four weeks where we await and prepare for the uh, celebration of Christ's coming. In the church calendar, you might be familiar, Christmas is 12 days long. It's not just one day. There's no celebration up until Christmas Day. It's just preparation and waiting. And then on Christmas Day begins a 12-year period of celebration and feasting uh, and, and rejoicing. And so today we're starting Advent. We're also starting a new Christmas sermon series called What I Need for Christmas. I've missed you guys the past couple of weeks. I'm glad to be back. I've been traveling. Uh, three weeks ago, I was in College Station speaking. Two weeks ago, I was in Spring speaking. And then last week, I had the unfortunate duty of traveling to the sunny weather of San Diego uh, for a conference. So someone's got to do it. I had to suffer, okay? I think it was the first time I've ever left Houston to go to warmer weather. Uh, and so it is beautiful in San Diego. But I'm happy to be back. I want to thank Wes and uh, my buddy Adam for filling in while I was gone. If you did not get a chance to listen to Adam's sermon from last week, it's up on the podcast. I would encourage you to go listen to it. I don't think there is a better 30 minutes uh, the way that you can use your time um, than listening to Adam's sermon from last week. It was a, it was a great job. And so I uh, want to clue you in on a couple of announcements as we get started this morning. Um, the biggest and, and, and first is... Uh, our youth will be leading a service, actually, on uh, Sunday, December 14th. On your card, it's wrong. It says December 12th. Um, but it's going to be on December 14th. Um, they are preparing to one day lead a youth service on Sunday morning. And so they're starting out. They're going to lead a Sunday evening service at 4 p.m. My buddy Ryan over there is going to be preaching. Uh, no pressure, Ryan. Um, he is 17 right now, so I told him he has three years until he's the pastor of this church. Right? <laughs> That's the cutoff. It's 20 years old, uh, and so it's coming quickly for him. So we would love for you to come and worship with us. Uh, it's all youth-led. And so part of what we want to do at the church is teach the next generation. And so um, our youth kids, we believe, will one day be the people running church services and leading churches. And so uh, we want to teach them and, and prepare them for, for how to do that. And so um, please make plans to come uh, and join us for that. Uh, it'll be an awesome time. Um, so if you have your scriptures, let's get after it this morning. We'll be in First John chapter 4. First John chapter 4. Uh, if you have your black hardback underneath the seat around you, it's page 1023. 1 John chapter 4. We're starting this new series. It's called What I Need for Christmas. <clears throat> I originally wanted this series to be a four-week filibuster of sorts of what I need for Christmas. So an iPhone 6, uh, some new health insurance. Um, the elder board voted that down though, okay? So we're uh, going with something else for what I need for Christmas. This is actually a sermon series that we're doing in conjunction with another church uh, in Pearland. So we're doing the same sermon series side-by-side side at Southway Community Church in Pearland. Some of you are familiar with them. Jason Hess is their pastor. He's preached over here. In two weeks, I'll be at Southway, and he'll be here. Uh, we'll be preaching the same sermon. So we're doing this series together. There's a website. Again, if you have the card, they made a little website, whatineedforchristmas.com. You can go there. It has resources that will go along with our sermon series, ideas for things to do together as a family and as a church community. Um, and the point of the series is we want to distinguish between our perceived needs when it comes to Christmas time and our ultimate needs, our real needs. Um, Christmas is a time where we often confuse the two. Um, you saw in the video, 
We spend a lot of money uh, on ourselves during the Christmas season. We have a lot of um, debt that we accumulate. A lot of that $450 billion, which I believe actually is an old statistic, the videos from a couple years ago, I think the estimates are this year $600 billion Americans are planning on spill, uh, spending or spilling uh, <laughs> at Christmas time this year. Um, a lot of that is debt-based. It's not actually money that we have, but it's money that uh, we wish we had. And so uh, on top of all of that, you have the stress of the holidays. We just got over Thanksgiving. Some of us are still recovering, okay? There's a unique family dynamic that happens when people come together and always together and personalities come and you have arguments about Obama's immigration reform and the Ferguson protests. And is that just my family? I guess so. Um, so that's all coming up on us quickly, right? And we have these needs uh, for Christmas, some perceived needs and some real needs. And so we want to say no to a certain way of celebrating Christmas, influenced by our world and by our culture, um, where we focus in on ourselves. And we want to say yes to a specifically Christian way of celebrating Christmas. Uh, and so that's what we'll be exploring um, for the next four weeks. We've got four topics, the classic Advent topics, peace, joy, hope, and love. And so this morning we want to talk about love. I think love, God's love, love from God, and then love for our neighbor is what ultimately we really need this Christmas. I think sometimes, and what we'll talk about this morning, we substitute God's love for us and our love for our neighbor with something else that's close, but it's a cheap substitute and it will end up betraying us, and that is attention. Uh, I think sometimes we substitute attention instead of the love that God has for us. And so this morning, um, we want to talk about those two things and the difference between the two of them. But we'll do that out of 1 John 4. Uh, we'll pick up in verse 7. This is one of, I think, the most beautiful passages on love uh, in our scriptures, one of my favorite passages. So we'll read together 1 John chapter 4. We'll pick it up in verse 7 and read through verse 12. If you would read along with me. John says this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Anyone who does not know God does not love, because God is love. And this, the love of God was made manifest among us, verse 9, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation or the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Now, a few truths I want to draw out from this passage this morning, three in particular. The first you see in verse 8, which I think is a very profound sentence. He says, anyone who doesn't love doesn't know God. Anyone who doesn't love doesn't know God. And the reason he gives for this is because he says God is love. In one of the most profound statements, I think, in our scriptures, he says God is love. At his very core, the very characteristic, the essence that characterizes God, his nature, according to the scriptures, is that of love. To understand this statement, we have to think of God in specifically Christian terms as triune. Christians believe God is one God existing in three persons. You have the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. What it means to say that God is love is that God has always been loving. That what it means to be God is to be in a loving relationship. To love takes relationship. It takes more than one. It takes mutual interdependency. And the picture that Christians have of God is of from all eternity, the Father has been loving the Son perfectly. And the Son has been loving the Spirit. 
And the Spirit has been loving the Son, and the Son has been loving the Father. And there's this triune, mutual, interdependent, perfect relationship of love. This is why it's correct to theologically say God is love, but not correct to say God is anger. God gets angry. This is a biblical principle, right? God gets angry. He gets very angry at certain things. But God isn't anger in his core. From all of eternity, God hasn't been angry. If nothing else existed, God wouldn't be angry. Anger is a contingent emotion for God. It only exists because disobedient creation exists. But in and of himself, from all of eternity, God has been love. God is love. This is the picture of God that we get from the scriptures. It's a picture I think we often don't truly digest in our lives. What we think about God is very important about us, about how we'll live our lives, how we'll relate to God. And I think we often think of God as angry or disappointed or as um, far away from us. Now, this is not a emotional kind of romantic comedy type of love. Um, God's love can be manifested as tough love. It's real love. It's true love. It's gritty love. You see what kind of love it is in verse 9. He defines it for us. And this, he says, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. God's love led him to come and save, to come and redeem. John says, if you want to see what love looks like, what God's type of love looks like, look at the cross or look at the manger, the incarnation. Look at God's rescue mission into a world full of sin, his sending his own son to die for us, an atoning sacrifice. So God is love. The second truth here is the definition of love we might get from the scriptures. We might define love as the sacrificial commitment to meeting the needs of others. Love looks like the cross. Love looks like someone paying a cost in order to meet the needs of someone else. This is how it's been manifest. This is how it's been revealed to us in creation. This is what love is. Again, I think this is a different picture of God Um, than what we normally get. I think the dominant narrative we have of God is that God is a God who rewards us or punishes us based on actions, on obedience or disobedience. And so God can be loving, but God can also be angry, and God can be happy, but can can also be disappointed and can also be ashamed. Um, But the picture we get again of God is God, a, a God fully of love, a God who's fully committed to his creation, who sent his son to die for his creation as an atoning sacrifice. And again, we, we oftentimes, I think, substitute for love a kind of cheap emotional feeling, infatuation. We think of love as an emotion and not a commitment. But there's a big difference between love and between what we might call attention, which is, I think, what we try to substitute for love. Attention is based on actions and based on stuff. And especially around Christmas time, I think we often seek attention. We seek people to reward us for good behavior, notice us, or um, we've all known the kid who wants attention and is willing to get it for bad behavior. We want attention, and we get attention for stuff. We want to acquire stuff and give stuff and want to receive attention in that way. But attention is different from love. Love is this commitment. It's a decision. It's an action. It's this gritty, everyday initiative to meet the well-being to meet the needs of others, to make sure that they are um, taken care of. And this is the love that's been shown to us through God. And so this third point that you see here in this passage is that those who know God, who know this God of love, who's received his love, 
then share his love with other people. In verse 7, he says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Someone who's truly received God's love for them, his unconditional, full love for them, who's understood the depths of the cross, who, who understands that it's personal what God did. And it's not just that God loves us as this ambiguous we, but that it was your sin that he paid for. It was your heart that he's chasing after. It's, it's your relationship that he wants. The rescue mission was about you. Someone who's understood that and who abides in that love, who receives that love, then shares that love with other people. Now, John is, when he's writing this letter, a old pastor. He is probably 80, maybe 90 years old, we think. He's been pastoring for a very long time. He knew Jesus. He was one of the inner three of the 12 disciples. And John, like other old people, let me tread carefully here. Old people have a tendency of being more honest than other people, of being more blunt. They have less cards to hide, right? They have, they have less political correctness about them. And this can be both good and bad at, at certain times, but John is very much, he falls into this category. So his letters, 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John, are full of this kind of very blunt talk. John sees the world in black and white. It's light or darkness, and you're either a follower of Christ or an antichrist. John repeatedly refers to people who don't believe in Christ as antichrist in the plural. Um, for John, there's no in-between, there's no gray area. John is an older gentleman looking at his congregation, and he says, look, you've got to be on a team here. It's black or it's white. And John is not unwilling to call you a liar if you say certain things but do other things. One of these things is um, when it comes to loving other people, if you look uh, in verse 20 in chapter 4, John says this, if anyone says, I love God, so with their mouths they say, I love God, and hates his brother, John says, he is a liar. He's lying. He's not telling the truth. He might have fooled himself, or he might know that it's a lie, but regardless, what's coming out of his mouth is not true. You cannot, at one and the same time, hate your brother and love God. For, he says, he does not, he does not love his brother whom he sees cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, he's talking about Jesus in John 13. John remembers Jesus in the upper room talking to disciples saying, whoever loves God must also love his brothers. In John 13, Jesus tells John that disciples should be known for their love for each other, for their commitment to each other's well-being, even when it's costly or sacrificial, which is what the love that God has revealed to us um, is defined by. Now, it's also important to realize that our love for other people is not something in the scriptures, biblically, that we are supposed to muster up um, on our own. I'm not called, you're not called as Christians to love other people because they're lovable, which is, in the end, really good news. Because people can be jerks, and people can be very unlovable. If we're honest, at times, we're all unlovable to certain people and in certain situations and in certain circumstances. Um, and, and so when we're called to love other people, it's not a call to look past their flaws or pretend like they're not annoying or a jerk or selfish or all those things that people often are. It's instead a call to let God's love for that person flow through us. We love because he has loved us. And our love for others is not something that we muster up on our own. It's not something we create. It's simply 
believing in God's affection for that person and allowing God's affection for that person to influence our behavior and our actions. So when we, cross, we come across somebody and we're called to love, it's not because we think they are lovable or unlovable. They might be one or the other. We love them, though, because we know a God who deeply loves everyone, who sent his son. We see someone worth loving because we believe they were worth Jesus dying for. If you divide the world into people that God loves and people that God hates, what you'll find is that it becomes awful easy to hate the people that God hates. And you don't have much logic to avoid this conclusion. You can trace this back historically, actually, to the Nazi regime in Germany. Uh, Germany was a largely Christian nation when the Nazi regime came up. Most of the soldiers fighting for the Nazis were Christians, reading their Bibles, going to church. Um, What they had done, though, is they had historically taken the Jewishness of the scriptures and of Jesus out of the equation. And so they were able to more easily blame the Jews for killing Christ and for causing all the bad problems that they had conceived in their own world and their own economic um, post-World War I situation. And so they thought, if God was planning on torturing the Jews forever in hell because he hated them, it's really not that big of a deal to start killing them now, to exterminate them. In a sense, you're almost on God's team, right? I mean, you're almost just doing the pre-work for God. Instead, though... When you notice, one, Jesus was a Jew. Jesus has a plan for the Jews. The scriptures are clear about that. God loves everyone equally. When you, when you really understand God's love for the world, the fact that he is love at his core, his primary disposition that everything in creation is love, is a pursuit, is a desire to redeem. When you understand that, then God's love can flow through you to other people. And it's not because you have considered them worthy of love. Or because you're able to muster up this sense of love inside of you, it's instead because you understand that God has been revealed on the cross through the face of Jesus. You've understood that you were once an enemy, that you were unlovable, that God loves you. And so God is love. Love is this sacrificial commitment to meeting the needs of others. And those who know God, who have received his love, are able to then share that love with other people, are able to, in their actions, in their day-to-day lives, make a sacrificial commitment to meeting the needs of others. So this is the love that God's given us that we are to receive and that we are to share with other people. But again, I think we often substitute love in this deep, rich, biblical sense for attention. And I think, especially at Christmas time, we do this. Again, attention, I would want to say, is... Is, is an emotion or an, an activity that's based on actions. You get attention for things that you do or things that you don't do, for good behavior or for bad behavior. And you often get attention for stuff, um, for stuff that you own or for stuff that you don't own or for stuff that you're able to give to other people. And all the cultural forces of Christmas time in America and the Western world come together um, and, and, and seek to have us pursue attention, receive attention, give attention, when instead I think what we need for Christmas is to receive love and to give love. And I think there's a big difference between the two. Um, there's a theological mistake behind this substitution. I'll call it a cheap substitution. Substituting attention for love. And as a pastor, I'm always thinking about what's the theological mistake behind bad behavior or behind bad thinking? What's the truth about God that we've misunderstood? 
or the truth about our identity in Christ that we've misunderstood. Here's the mistake, I think, um, when we substitute attention for love. We start to think that God doesn't pay us attention. That God doesn't care about us or that God doesn't notice us. And so we seek attention in good ways and in bad ways, with stuff, without stuff. Or we think that God pays us the wrong kind of attention. We have this dominant narrative in our mind that God loves us when we're good but hates us when we're bad. And, and, and when we're in disobedience, God wants to punish us and condemn us uh, and doesn't want anything to do with us. The gospel, though, 1 John 4, I think, corrects both of these mistakes. God pays attention to you. God is love in his core. God looks at you constantly and wants what's best for you. Even if that's a tough love, even if that's a love that you, you maybe aren't so sure you're willing to receive. Sometimes what's best for you is not what you can immediately identify. But that's what God wants for you. And God's love for you is not conditional. It's not a contract. It's not a, if you behave, then I'll love you. It's a, I love you. Not that we've loved God, John says, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for us. There are some differences between attention and love that I want to uh, identify this morning and amplify. The first is this. Attention, receiving and getting attention, is very <coughs> fleeting. It's temporary. Getting attention from other people for your actions or for the stuff that you have or get or give is something that doesn't last very long. It lasts only as long as you act that way or as long as you have that stuff. By contrast, love, receiving God's love and giving God's love is something that is eternal. It's something that lasts um, forever. It's something that won't go away because it is based on something eternal. It's based not on your actions or not on your stuff, but based on God himself who is eternal. It's based on his character, his nature. As long as God is love, which will be forever, you are able to receive God's love. And you are able to give God's love out to the people around you. It's based on the finished work of Christ on the cross. So attention is fleeting and temporary. Receiving and giving God's love, though, is lasting and sustaining. The second difference, attention is shallow. It's superficial. It's about us, our behavior, both good or bad. It's about our stuff, what we have or don't have or what we can or cannot give. In this way, it's something that can easily be lost. It's something that has to be earned. It's something that constantly changes. It's shallow. It's superficial. Whereas love is deep. It's satisfying. It reaches places in our hearts and in our minds and in our souls and in our lives that attention can't reach. A true love, the love from, from God, the love seen on the cross, received as a sinner, one unworthy, is a love that satisfies in this deep, rich way. The psalmist says, your love satisfies me. Your love is worth more to me than life itself, he says in Psalm 63. More important than my heart continuing to beat is that I would receive and feel and know your love for me. It satisfies me. He says, like the richest of foods, like the strongest of wines or grape juice. Uh, number three, the third difference between attention and love, and this I think perhaps most important, attention is self-centered or stagnant. It's focused on myself, on me, my actions, both good or bad, the stuff that I have and can receive or can get or give. Whereas love is, by its very nature, other-centered. 
it's transformative. It leads to action. It leads to change. It focuses on others. And this is what John's hitting at, both in this passage and throughout his letter. When we receive God's love, it transforms us. It produces action in us. Um, The Christian life can often be boiled down to really basic things. And one of them is that Christians are called to be Christ-like. Christians are called to act like Jesus. And perhaps at Christmas time, better than no other time during the year, can the church stand out as countercultural if it acts like Christ? As they seek to serve other people instead of to be served. As they seek to give love instead of receive attention. As they seek to serve the needy around them. We saw in the video all the money spent in America. Um, there's been this movement, Advent Conspiracy. This is another great resource if you were looking um, for stuff to do or to think through. They have lots of practical tips for how you can prepare for Christ's coming in a very Christ-like way, adventconspiracy.org. Uh, they, um, for years, have been, been pushing this idea that perhaps Christians should spend less, you saw in the movie, spend less and take that money and use it to give to others. Use it to give to the people in need around them. At a time in our culture where we center in on ourselves and spend ridiculous amounts of money on ourselves, stuff we don't need, stuff we don't really want, again, useless gifts, man, I can count probably on two hands the kind of gifts that I've really enjoyed and used and lasted. Um, and, and some of them maybe have been expensive, but I can... I could list right now, and perhaps it's just because there are bad gift buyers in my family, um, but the amount of money that's been spent on stuff that goes immediately in my closet or to Goodwill or to the trash, right? I mean, it just, it's not what I need. It's not what I'm looking for, and it produces no real meaning in my life, no real substance in my life. Um, biblically, wealth is not a bad thing. Money is not a bad thing. Um, the tension with wealth and money for Christians comes in play when you have a world in need. And then there's a question of how much do we spend on ourselves for our comfort, for our well-being, versus how much we give to those who are hungry, to those who are naked, to those who are clothless. That's where the tension hits for Christ's people. It's not that buying stuff for yourself is bad. It's not that celebrating with your family is bad. It's that there's um, a fine line between being self-centered and then being Christ-like and, and sacrificially at a cost to yourself serving the people around you. What we need for Christmas, what we truly need for Christmas is to receive God's love and to share it with others. Um, so we'll end this morning with some Advent adventures. Every week we'll have some Advent adventures, some things perhaps we can do during the week to prepare for uh, Christ's coming uh, on Christmas uh, to prepare for that 12-day celebration. Um, and so I've got three practical suggestions for ways that we might perhaps avoid seeking attention and instead for receiving God's love and for sharing it. Here's the first one. The first Advent adventure practical suggestion is that we would find time this week, maybe today, maybe throughout the week, maybe every day this week, to reflect on and to receive God's love for us. It's been said that you can't love other people if you don't love yourself first. There may or may not be truth to that. I think a deeper truth would be that you cannot love other people until you've received God's love first. Again, like we talked about, because it's hard to muster up love for other people who are often unlovable. 
It's God's unconditional love flowing through us that allows us to love other people, reflect on, receive God's love for us. There are often things that keep us from receiving God's love. Perhaps it's the time to reflect on that. Sin in our lives, sin in our past, makes us think that God can't love us. God does not love us. He's angry, disappointed, ashamed. Past relationships, guilt over things done to us or things that we've done, other people in our life. What are the things that are keeping us from receiving God's love? Are we looking to get attention from God? Are we looking to impress him with good works, with busyness, with our achievements? Or are we truly soaking in his satisfying, unconditional love for us? So there's all kinds of ways that perhaps you might do this with your family or with your spouse. Um, there are, again, at the website, whatineedforchristmas.com or adventconspiracy.org or all over the internet and all over um, in our community. You can ask other people who have done this before. There are ways as a family, and family devotions, at breakfast table, at the dinner table, that you might be able to reflect on God's love for us, reflect on what keeps us from receiving God's love for us. But as we approach Christmas, I think this is a, a worthy thing to do. Here's the second Advent adventure. The first one, reflect on and receive God's love. The second one is to actively love someone who's hard to love. So pick somebody. Maybe you can immediately think of this person right off the top of your head. Someone who is unlovable. Someone who is annoying. Someone who is a jerk. An overbearing boss. A annoying neighbor. A person who sits across from you at the lunch table, whatever it might be, someone who is hard to love, and then action item, concretely, in your day-to-day life, do something loving to them. Maybe at a cost to yourself. Maybe the cost might just be your pride, right? Getting over it and doing something nice to them. Or maybe you, you actually sacrifice something, time or money, in order to be able to bless this person to meet their needs. Uh, Jesus often will say, while he's teaching the Gospels, that it's not very impressive to love people who love you. Repeatedly, he says something to this extent, to this nature, that even the Gentiles love people who love them. I mean, think of murderers, right? Murderers, unless they're like extremely psychopathic, still probably like people who like them. Jesus says, this is not, you don't get like a Nobel Peace Prize for doing that, right? There's nothing very impressive about being nice to people who are nice to you. He says what's what's really, though, what God is desiring from you is for you to love people who are your enemies. Jesus will say, this is what makes a kingdom person, not someone who loves the people who love them, but people who love the people who don't love them, who love their enemies. And there's something in, I think, learning how to love our enemies. Again, not this emotional, we look past their mistakes where we act like and pretend like they do nothing that makes them unlovable or makes them an enemy to us, but a concrete action, I'm committed to your well-being and I'm willing to sacrifice myself to meet a need of yours. There's something about doing that, maybe picking somebody this week and doing that too, that I think does two things. One, it helps us to receive God's love, to think through the fact that we were actually enemies of God, that we were actually estranged from God. We were unlovable. It's not that we've loved God. We didn't earn his love for us. He gave it to us freely. And when we do that to other people who haven't earned our love, it helps us to understand that dynamic in a deeper, more significant way. And then it it helps us, I think, really understand what it means to love. It helps us to get past this kind of emotional definition of love that's fleeting and temporary 
um, and based on our moods and, and get to a, a concrete, gritty, cross-like love where you say, despite how I'm feeling, I'm going to meet your needs, even at a cost or sacrifice to me. And then the third Advent adventure, and this will come up probably every week here in the series, you'll see on our, our logo there's a, a handout, a serving handout, what I need for Christmas. Um, the third Advent adventure would be to think through or start thinking through at least ways that we can serve this Christmas season the least of these in our society. Maybe as a family or as individuals, as a church community. What ways are there that we can reach out to those around us who, both in our community and in our global community, um, are in need at at a cost to us, something sacrificial to us that we we give in such a way that it hurts? Uh, If you still have your scriptures open, look in 1 John 3. John, again, this very black and white, very intense old man. In 3.16 says this, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. Again, that's the definition of love. It's Christ's action, God's action through Christ, laying down his life for us. And we, he says, ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods... And sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him. How does God's love abide in him? If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, but closes his heart, how does the love of God abide in him? It's a rhetorical question to John. The answer is obviously it doesn't. We have resources. We see people without resources. And we close our hearts toward them. It's hard to imagine that we've really received and understood God's love, a love that overflows out from us. He says, little children, which is not a prerogative term. He's not patronizing them. He's a pastor affectionately talking to his, his flock, his congregation. So little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Not word and talk, but indeed in truth. And so um, we want to think through this Advent season as we prepare to celebrate God's sacrificial gift to us in both becoming a human and then not only becoming a human, but obeying even to death on a cross. We want to think through ways that we might be able to sacrifice for the world around us. There are needs around us. You You might know families in need. You might know people in need. You might know global situations where there is need. What ways that... Are there that, that you or that your family or that we as a church community can come together and meet those needs? What we need this Christmas season is not attention. We don't need more stuff. I mean, sure, there's some stuff I, I'd like. Again, I've got a list if you're looking for it. What we need, though, what we truly need is to receive God's love for us. Something that will sustain us and abide in us. And what we really, truly need, especially at this time more than any other, is to be able to express that love out to the world around us in this Christmas season. Would you pray with me?